Hi, I'm Lynn. And I'm Jan. Welcome to the Lamplighters podcast. Lamplighters is a community that encourages women to grow in our faith through the study of God's Word. And we are grateful to be on the journey with you this year as we travel through the Bible following the stories of some of the women who have impacted our faith. So today, we've got a lesson that is, at first may seem like a version of another story we've studied earlier in the year, right? Mm-hmm. Remember Rachel and Leah? Mm-hmm. Even Sarah and Hagar? Yeah. Two wives, one husband, fertility versus infertility, jealousy and resentment, and ultimately a not-so-happy ending. Mm-hmm. Well, this story today is the story of Hannah, and it has many of the same themes as those stories, but it is very different. It's very different, mm-hmm. yes. So let's give it our full attention because it has a very important lesson. So let's begin with the main character, Hannah. Her name means beautiful or charming, and she's married to Elkanah. Now, I don't know if I'm going to be pronouncing. There are a couple of names in here. Just go, go with, with just go with me. And I hope you're not cringing the way I'm pronouncing this when you're listening. <laughs> Someone <laughs> and, needs to call us and yeah, tell us how to do it. I know. Elkanah is a man who loves her very much. Hannah is his first wife, and his love for he, her is very clear. Despite their deep love for one another, there's a sadness in Hannah because she has been unable to have a child. Mm. Now, infertility is a hard, hard thing for so many reasons. I have mentioned before that I don't have an answer as to why some women are unable to have children, while others seem to be able to have as many as their heart desires. In my own life, Neil and I weren't unable to have a child, which is a sadness that we both still carry. However, having confessed that, I also have to say that I can see so many other great things that God has placed in our lives. We each have a story that is unique to us, and God is there with us through every step. Now, in Hannah's time, children were a sign of a woman's value as a human being. Can you even imagine that kind of pressure? Children were also very important to parents because they needed someone there to take care of them as they age and were unable to care for themselves. That makes more sense to me now than it used to. Yeah. (laughs) But it goes deeper than that because wanting a child is never a one-dimensional thing. There are so many layers from societal worth to fulfilling traditional roles to having someone to love and be loved by. The heartache of not being able to have something you long for so deeply can be unbearable at times. And we see this with Hannah. There was personal pain, but there was also an embarrassment in society. Because a Hebrews man posterity was tied up to having his son carry on his name, his wife's inability to conceive a son was regarded as a curse from God. Mm. Now, that has always really bothered me, so I dug a little bit deeper. According to Deuteronomy 7, 13 and 14, having children was a sign of God's blessing. This is just one way that He blesses us, because we know that God is not limited in the ways that He can bless us. So does it follow that if having a child is a blessing, that not having a child is is a curse. That's what the Israelites believed. That's not, yes, that is not what God said. And please notice the difference. This is what we do, isn't it? 
Mm-hmm. We embellish and add on to what God says, usually to either make us feel better about ourselves or to make other people look worse. Now, in Scripture, there are places where women were cursed with childlessness, but not all childlessness is a curse. There are also places where God specifically identifies and honors women who are barren. It's always about God's plan, not ours. You know, this is a very, very difficult subject, and we've touched on it before. Um, We don't mean to sound flippant or... um, insensitive about it. Um, but but here's where having a really firm belief in the sovereignty and goodness of God is a is a lifeline for people, right? Not just in this particular issue, but in any issue that you're in or experience that mm-hmm. you're having that is something you don't want. Right. Right. Um, even though we frequently and I'd say more often than not, do not understand what God is or isn't doing, mm-hmm. we can really never know the fullness of the plans he has for us. But we can cling to the fact that he does have a plan and he will bring it about. And mm-hmm. that plan will be a good one and it will bless us. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 11 is one yeah. of my favorite verses Mine because too. it brings me comfort in situations I just don't understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned it earlier, uh, Lynn, we're each uniquely created by God and for God. So his plan for my life is not the same as his plan for your life. Mm-hmm. And we shouldn't compare our lives, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. he has a plan for each of us. So the challenge is to be like Hannah. And that is continued faithfulness, even when the desires of our heart are beyond reach. So trust that God is at work for good. And sometimes that is not easy. No, it's not. And it is that whole comparison being the thief of joy. If we can focus on ourselves, we're in a better place. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Hannah is not alone in this story. So let's go back to Elkanah, her husband. Elkanah regularly took his family on an annual pilgrimage to the temple of the Lord at Shiloh. This was a major undertaking, and it was expensive, and it was far beyond the means of ordinary working men. So when you put all that together, we can assume that he was a man of wealth. Now, their inability to produce an heir presented another problem for him. Who was going to inherit his wealth? Well, we get the impression that Elkanah was basically a good man— but his need for heirs for his land led him to take matters into his own hands. Oh, we've never seen that before. Never. Often in those days, a man whose wife was infertile would take a second wife so he could have children. This, however, was never sanctioned by God. Polygamy was contrary to the original law, but it seemed to have been prevalent among the Hebrews in those days. You know, in the book of Judges, it says that when there was no king in Israel, every man did what seemed right in his own eyes. And I guess that seemed right in his eyes. So this is when the second woman enters the picture. Peninnah enters the picture. And her name means fertile, prolific. And true to her name, she bears him several heirs, which doesn't help Hannah's spirit at all. Elkanah now has children to care for him in his old age, but what's going to happen to Hannah if he dies first? There is no expectation that she will be cared for by Peninnah's children. But Hannah's barrenness did not diminish Elkanah's love for her. In fact, he gave her twice what he gave Peninnah. Elkanah loved Hannah more, which no doubt added to the tension already existing between the two women. Mm. They are described as rivals, but the Hebrew word actually means warring enemies. 
that's strong. We get the clear picture of a cycle of love and jealousy that deepens the pain and struggle in this love triangle. Elkanah's love for Hannah antagonized Peninnah, so she belittled her rival, Hannah, every chance she got. None of Elkanah's assurances of love and devotion had any beneficial effect on Hannah and her sorrow. You know, there's an old African saying, which a pastor told me when we were over there doing mission work, and I think it applies here. And he said, one wife, some trouble. Many wives, lots of trouble. You're not kidding. I think this was not a peaceful household. That's right. Well, Hannah's childlessness colored her whole outlook on life. Scripture says that she was bitter. She wept often and would not eat. She was downhearted. The tragedy here is that Hannah is so burdened by her childlessness that she can't experience any of God's blessing in her life. It's become her whole focus, this this not being able to have a child. Her depression was so great that she could not recognize any evidence of God's grace in her life. Hannah had no child. But she did have a husband who loved her and who was sympathetic. And like Hannah, we can also feel bitter and downcast and are unable to notice the good gifts God has given us if there are things going on in our lives that are not part of our plan. Mm -hmm. Hannah's perspective was so totally colored by her personal tragedy that she could not sense the beauty, the good, or the grace God infused in her life. You know, I think we can all relate to this on some level. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of it has to do with our own expectations that you talked about last week, Lynn. Expectations lead to disappointment when they're not met. But Hannah had an additional problem. Not only her desires for a child and also all those expectations of society and culture, Mm -hmm. but a woman's identity was her children. So being unable to have a child was a disaster. Hannah, in some regards, became invisible. Mm -hmm. She lost herself, and no amount of blessing for her husband could compensate. That's what happens when our identity is defined by anything or anyone other than God. Mm -hmm. We get so wrapped around ourselves, we become blind or indifferent to the work God is actually doing. It's hard to change our focus. That's so true. Well, everything comes to a head for Hannah one year at Shiloh. She cannot bear her pain any longer. She gets up and leaves her meal and goes out near the entrance to the temple, and she is weeping and pouring out her heart to Yahweh of hosts. She approaches God reverently, as we see in her reference to herself as handmaid of the Lord. Most astonishing astonishing to me is that she vows that if the Lord would give her a son, she would dedicate him all the days of his life as a Nazarite. If Mm. God gave her a son, she would give him right back. In her rock-bottom moment, her only resort was to cast herself entirely on the mercies of God. This would seem comical if it weren't something I had done myself. When all else fails, ask God, right? Right. Exactly (laughs) right. (laughs) Yeah. Finally, in her bitterness and desperation, Hannah had done two things. First, she took her bitterness to God. And this is such an important reminder. We don't have to try and act like everything is okay. God knows our hearts anyway. He doesn't just want the good side of us. He wants all of us. And so she was angry and she was bitter and she went to him and told him that. So that's something that we can model. If we are angry or bitter, take it to God. He can handle it. 
Absolutely. And the second step she took was that she reordered her priorities. Notice in her prayer, Hannah made a commitment to dedicate the son she prayed for to the Lord. She no longer wanted a child just for herself. She began to look beyond her own needs and her own desires. Hannah's prayer was a desperate one, and it was so heartfelt that her lips moved, even though she was praying in her heart. Well, that's when Eli, the high priest, thought she was drunk and tried to send her away. Then she explained to him that she was praying out her anguish and grief. So Eli dismissed Hannah with a blessing. May the God of Israel grant your petition. And Hannah went away with a strange sense of assurance. We read that she ate and her face was no longer downcast. That is a picture of faith. Despite her current circumstances, the blessing she received reminded her that God would redeem her circumstances. That prayer of Hannah's was answered. She conceived and bore a child whom she named Samuel. Three years go by and Hannah remembers her vow. She takes Samuel back to Eli and presents him to the Lord for a lifetime of service. And to me, this is the most remarkable part of the story. This son, who she had prayed to have for years, she now hands back to God willingly, not with tears, wailing, gnashing of teeth, but with a song of praise so reverent and so joyful that it is said to have been the prayer that Mary echoed centuries later in the Gospel of Luke. Mm-hmm. You know, this is even more astonishing to me, Lynn, because when we remember what Hannah had three to four years with Samuel to pour into him and imprint him with her love for the Lord. So she was entrusting him to God, yes, mm-hmm. but through Eli. Yeah a man who had misjudged her Mm -hmm. and who was a terrible father to his own two rebellious sons. And that's real trust. It sure is. All right, well, let's break down this beautiful prayer. The first thing to notice is it's a song of pure joy. This is a prayer that shows a deep awareness of who God is. Hannah is acknowledging all that she has to be joyful for. She is rejoicing in her personal deliverance from a life of misery She had spent so many years unable to conceive a child and suffered deeply from the pain that she experienced as a result. Next, Hannah is rejoicing in the person of God. She sees His holiness, she feels His strength, and she respects His knowledge. Hannah acknowledges God as holy, as one who knows and weighs human deeds. God is the righteous one who judges all of our actions. Hannah is aware that often those who are rich, powerful, and blessed are humbled, and at the same time, those who are poor, weak, and dishonorable can be exalted. Hannah sees him as the one who satisfies the needy, who is master of life and death, of poverty and wealth. We often don't notice that over the long haul, life has a way of evening out because we're too focused on the moment that we're in instead of the big picture Mm. that God has painted. We focus on what we want rather than what we have, or we see only what others are given instead of what we already have been given. And finally, Hannah rejoices in her hope. She believes that the righteous are under the watchful care of God. She announces that ultimately God would judge the whole world, give strength to his king, 
and exalt the horn of power of his anointed. The mention here of universal judgment could be prophecy pointing to the coming one, the Messiah. Clearly, this song of praise is spirit-inspired. God can turn despair to hope and failure to triumph. Hannah's sense of power and glory of God is summed up beautifully in this prayer. In her gratitude, Hannah remembers her vow and joyfully gives her son Samuel, while he is still a small boy, to serve God at the shrine in Shiloh. But because of the reorienting that Hannah did, she was able to look beyond herself and her own needs. She could sense God's love now and trust Him, and she could sense the future that God had for this first child she loved so deeply. Because Hannah truly had given her son to the Lord, she trusted God to care for him and to give him a fulfilling life. A child who would grow up to become one of the most significant servants in the storyline of our Messiah. The story of Hannah and Elkanah ends with a single paragraph. Each year, the two returned to the tabernacle to worship, bringing Samuel new clothes, but they did not come alone. God had opened Hannah's womb and she bore three additional sons and two daughters. Mm. What a wonderful reminder. It is impossible for us to outgive God. This is just a really powerful um, story, and I love that song. The fact that Hannah could sing so joyfully indicates to me that she wasn't bargaining with God when mm-hmm. she said, I'll give him back to you. Right. You know, she wasn't trying to create a contract where if God did something, she would do something. That's right. And I think that's a warning for us. Um, and and what strikes me about this lesson, the big picture of it, is the number of times the Lord or pronoun is mentioned is 50 times in 39 verses. Yeah, it's a lot. So it's clear that despite all of the personal details and experiences of Hannah in it, it is the Lord who is the center of this story. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> it makes me wonder how many times I've sort of written him out of the script of my life mm-hmm. because I've decided that something is either impossible or that God will say no or mm-hmm. he has said no. And so I kind of write him out of the script or, mm-hmm. I, or I give him a role that he's not intended to take, like to have a contract with him, right? Mm-hmm. So what would it look like for me to reframe the impossible with God as the main actor? And that, that's what I want to think of today. Mm-hmm. Just think of that impossible situation in our lives and put God in mm-hmm. as the main character in the story. So what would you like to leave our listeners with today? Well, I think it would be a good exercise for all of us to stop and notice if there is anything in our lives that we have given up on, maybe because we've neglected to give it to God. Hmm. Now would be a good time to reorient your thinking and offer it up in prayer. That's a perfect way to reframe and Mm -hmm. to let God back into our stories. Lynn, you're always so succinct and practical. I appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) Until next time. 